This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. You know, there's a lot to learn about veteran benefits. They served our country, protecting the homeland. A lot of these veterans came home and took off their uniform, went back to work, and didn't like to talk about their experiences. But the experience can take a toll. So they don't, they don't want to come into the VA office. They just want to walk away and, uh, and get back into society, get a job, take care of business, and then they come in. Issues facing our veterans, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. This weekend, we honor those who served. Veterans Day, a day originally founded to mark the end of the Great War, World War I. Last week, we shared with you on this program the struggles faced by some veterans who found the going pretty tough once they got back home, They told us their compelling stories firsthand. But resources are available in communities large and small across the state. Sometimes it's housing. Sometimes help with applying for the benefits they earned while in uniform. And sometimes it's sharing stories of their time in the service to help the next generation understand the experience. We'll cover all of those in this week's program. Kevin Dill is a Marine Corps veteran who runs the Blackhawk County Veteran Affairs Office in Waterloo. Our homeless population is small here in Blackhawk County. So the majority of our work is really the veterans who are just seeking their benefits. What benefits are out there for me? You come home, you get a job, you raise a family, 30, 40 years go by, um, and you think, hmm, are there any benefits for me? I've never looked into them. And then they come in and they find out, I can use a VA doctor? Sure. Wait a minute, I'm going to get a check tax-free from the government for um, the injury I had 30 years ago when I was in the service? It's possible, and it really just improves the quality of their life as they're getting into the time of fixed income. Do you find a hesitance on the part of veterans who all say are approaching senior years mm-hmm. to even ask for services or inquire about it? They may know about it. They may have heard about it, but... Does it take a lot to get them through the door? It does sometimes, especially our World War II and Korean War veterans. You know, they they signed up. They feel like they did their duty. They came home, went back to work. And it was square. The deal exactly. was square. Yeah. We're good. We don't want anything or need anything. Yeah, those are tough. Um, and a lot of veterans will come in and say, hey, everybody says I'm supposed to come see you. I really don't want to because I don't want to take away from somebody who needs it. And you're really not. You kind of take away when you don't come in. Um, we want to keep explain that. Well, we want to keep that? telling Congress that there are veterans in need. There are veterans entitled to certain benefits. So the more that come in, the more we're telling Congress, hey, there is still a need. So keep allocating funding for uh, veterans issues. If nobody comes in, well, then there's no need to allocate funding for and, when, and they move the funding somewhere else. And, you know, and it really helps the, uh, the states who have required by law to have veteran service officers. Not all states do. But it's very hard as a veteran. If there wasn't a veteran service officer in the state, in that county, it's hard for the veteran to know where to go. While the veteran homeless issue is not very large in Blackhawk County, just down the interstate in Lynn County, it's a different story. Phoebe Trepp is executive director of willis Dady Homeless Services, the largest homeless shelter in Lynn County. We have three staff currently who are entirely focused on working with homeless veterans. And there is, you know, there's a lot to learn about veteran benefits. 
and based on your discharge status or um, any injuries you may have incurred in the military, you may be eligible for all kinds of different things. So that's one strength that our staff can um, help them navigate through the things they're eligible for. Also, there are vets that don't want to be in shelter. They don't want to come in and stay in a room with four other men or 16 other people sharing the same bathroom. Um, they really want their own space sometimes. So that's we're very fortunate to have staff that are really specifically trained to case manage with the veteran population. And here in Cedar Rapids, we serve about 15% of all of our clients are veterans, so it's higher than the average um, percent in the population. So we do still see a lot of vets that struggle with homelessness. However, the bright side is um, nationally and here in Iowa, the number of homeless vets is declining. Is it a similar situation, do you know, in a place like Waterloo or Davenport or Des Moines or Sioux City? In other words, the more populous areas, do you have that larger percentage of homeless who are veterans in these cities as opposed to the rural areas? That's hard to say. We actually serve quite a few veterans um, out in rural counties. So we currently work with Lynn County, but also six other more rural counties. Um, And we very often get referrals from someone who's seen a veteran come maybe to a food pantry or maybe they went to their county veteran service officer for assistance and they call us and the veteran might be living in their car um, or living in a campground for extended periods of time because they don't want to come into a major you know, metropolitan area. So I think that probably statistically we'd see that there's a fairly even spread per capita of, of homeless veterans but those that seek shelter would be coming into more of the you know, Waterloo, Des Moines, Cedar Rapids areas. You mentioned the percentage of the homeless that you serve in Cedar Rapids who are veterans is higher than the average. Why do you suppose that is? So we, we know from a few studies that veterans do struggle with some specific challenges. When they come back from service, often things have changed uh, for themselves personally and then for their families. So we see many veterans who've come back and the family unit hasn't stayed together um, and the veteran is then out on their own and uh, may suffer from some kind of mental illness if it's PTSD or if it's other forms of trauma. Um, And many of the veterans that we work with actually had PTSD or trauma from earlier incidents in their childhood, then went into the military and those were maybe compounded. So I think that family breakup is a fairly common thing for veterans who are experiencing homelessness. willis Dady Homeless Services is in the midst of a $3 million capital campaign that will include long-term and family housing. Groundbreaking on that new facility takes place this coming Monday afternoon. Back in Blackhawk County, Veteran Affairs Director Kevin Dill says there's an effort to introduce younger veterans to the opportunities available. You know, when I got out of the Marine Corps, we were always told that it it takes 2 to 11 years to adapt back to civilian life. Um, No matter how long you were in. Yeah. And some longer because they experience uh, things that most of us would never experience. So it takes a while to adapt back. Um, So they they don't want to come into the VA office. They just want to walk away and uh, and get back into society, get a job, take care of business, and then they come in. Uh, but we've seen a number of post-9-11 and Gulf War veterans are starting to come into our office. Um, some people ask me why, and, and my typical answer is, you know, most people don't care what you know until they know you care. 
And I think our office has demonstrated in this county that we care. So more and more of our younger veterans are coming in and saying, hey, my buddy told me about you. What can you do for me? And uh, it really does improve the quality of their life. So we're really trying to tell the post-9-11 veterans, hey, come in. Um, you have to at least have the knowledge of what's available. Sure. And then you make the decision. Do you want to pursue it or not? But at least you know. Everything's on the table for you. Do you want to pursue a a claim because you were injured or suffered an illness and it's still here today? Do you want to do that? Do you want to pursue PTSD? Some of them don't. Sure. Um, they feel like if they pursue that, then the, the sheriff will come and take their guns or they can't get jobs. Um, it's also, and this is not accurate, but it's their impression, it's admitting a weakness. Yeah, it is true. And for the for the veterans, uh, the men and women who are married, I usually tell them, look, if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your family. Um, because there may be a benefit for your wife or your husband down the road. For your children, there could be college-free education for your children, which um, that's a huge benefit. And um, so if you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for the buddy behind you who's coming in so that we can tell Congress to keep allocating funding or do it for your family. And most of the time when I come at them that way, okay. Uh, let me file this benefit because I want to help my brother behind me or my sister behind me. And I want to tell Congress, hey, we need to keep allocating funding for, for veterans. You served. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Sure. How gratifying is it for you to be able to help a fellow member of the U.S. Armed Forces? Oh, it's, it's, it's an awesome feeling when somebody comes in, they're struggling. And then three or four months later, the VA sends them a letter saying, Hey, we've awarded you this benefit. Here's an extra $2,000 a month tax-free access to health care for the rest of your life with the opportunity that it may go up. And just to see their face, um, it's unbelievable to watch the quality of their lives improve that um, they never thought was possible. Um, It's a good feeling. So we're trying to get more and more people to come in. Kevin Dill, Blackhawk County Veteran Affairs Director. Coming up, we'll learn about a project allowing veterans to tell their stories. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. I'm Bailey Doyle, a member of the marketing and public relations team at the nonprofit Iowa Watch. Iowa Watch is part of an exciting funding opportunity through Newsmatch, a national campaign supported by Democracy Fund, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation in partnership with the Institute for Nonprofit News and the News Revenue Hub. Every dollar you donate right now to Iowa Watch will be matched by Newsmatch. Please consider giving through this great opportunity by going to the Donate button at the top of iowawatch.org. That web address, again, is iowawatch.org. Thank you for listening to our report today. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa Insurance Division's Iowa Fraud Fighters Program. This statewide initiative educates Iowans on how to double-check before they invest and shield their savings from scammers. Thousands of Iowans have attended fraud fighter forums across the state to learn about new scams circulating in their area and how to stay a step ahead of fraudsters. Learn how to fight fraud and why it is important to report scams at iowafraudfighters.gov. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from AARP Iowa. 
Every two seconds, someone's identity gets stolen. That's why AARP launched the Fraud Watch Network to arm people of all ages with the tools they need to spot and avoid scams. Learn how to protect yourself at aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. That's aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. The Sullivan Brothers Iowa Veterans Museum opened in downtown Waterloo in the fall of 2008. It's part of the Grout Museum District and named for the five brothers who enlisted together 75 years ago this year and who all perished aboard the USS Juno 75 years ago this very weekend. Among the various projects at the museum, an oral history project documenting the stories of veterans. I visited the facility in August and spoke with Chris Shackelford and Bob Niemeyer, who spearhead the interviews and many of the exhibits there. We started collecting oral histories from veterans, from Iowa veterans, about 2004 when we started putting this, uh, the new addition to the Grout Museum, the Iowa Veterans Museum. We started collecting as background material, things that we could use in research and include a line or perhaps a paragraph. Uh, That started about 2004, 2005 as that idea starts to mature. We quickly realized that the quality of the interviews that we were getting was so superior to anything that we could write that we said, okay, let's do a formal interview. We will preserve it. Digitalization was coming on the scene, so it was getting easier to preserve. We started out with VHS tapes. And um, and so we started collecting uh, those stories sort of methodically, trying to get some balance between the different services, the different theaters. Uh, we had something in the exhibit that was going to be featured. Let's get a couple of interviews that deal with Iwo Jima. Let's get a couple of interviews that deal with uh, uh, one of the stories in Vietnam. So where do the people come from? Do you purposefully seek certain people? Do folks come and visit and have stories to tell or a combination? Uh, a combination. We have for the most part, depended upon people saying, you know, I know somebody, you need to talk to my dad. Uh, You know, my uncle was in, Um, you know, and so we get people that way. Occasionally, I will find names in the newspaper or in other media, and we say, oh, that that guy's somebody we need to interview. Uh, And uh, this past month, I've had two people walk in the door, and we sat down and interviewed them on the spot because they were passing through summer tourists, you know, but they were Iowa connections, and so we just sat down and did them right away. So we got one of the better interviews from Vietnam. Uh, Jim Hughes was a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. He was literally in the building for two hours. You know, and one of those hours he spent talking to us. Chris, as a researcher and as someone who wants to tell the story in a public way, 
What benefit is there of these oral history interviews, or as you create an exhibit of having the voices of the actual individuals be there on a screen? Sure, they're absolutely invaluable. Um, And a lot of these interviews that we collect are not necessarily the war stories where they were in a major battle. It's the everyday experience. A lot of people can relate to what it's like to go through training, what it's like to go overseas and, you know, be transported halfway across the world and rely upon your comrades. These are stories that, yes, as Bob was articulating, are easy to write about, but you can never capture the soul of it uh, unless you hear it directly from a veteran's uh, uh, account. You've been working on a Korea exhibit. What age, just to put it into context, are those veterans now, and how easy or difficult has it been to get good first-hand accounts at this point in history? Sure. It's been over 60 years since the first Korean War, and uh, we think um, they're in their 80s, early 90s in many cases, and although we have a lot of participation from local Korean War veterans, some of the best interviews we have are from almost a decade ago of when the museum was beginning this work, and Drawing upon those stories was priceless as we're writing this story. They, they are the essence of what we're trying to tell. I tell people a lot of times the Sullivan Brothers Veterans Museum is not a war museum. We're a veterans museum. That is really what we're trying to uh, explain is the experience of these individuals. And as you say, it doesn't have to be somebody who was a decorated veteran or involved in various conflicts that we all know about, because those are already known to some degree. Those who were back on the home front don't know the day-to-day. Sure. A lot of veterans come in here and say, hey, I don't really have much to tell you. You know, I was on a ship off the coast of Korea. I'm not sure exactly what you want to hear from me. But the true value of these are a decade, I mean, a generation or two away. It's going to be the grandkids or great-grandkids who are unable to hear the story from their, their grandparents who served in Korea or other conflicts. And these are preserved for history, um, and hopefully they'll, they'll survive as long as um, our, our archives are able to support them. Bob, it seems to me something that Chris just said really hits home. How many of these people come in? They're veterans. They've served their country valiantly, and yet they don't really think they have anything to say. I think Chris is right. A lot of people say, well, I, I served, but I didn't do anything famous, anything unique. I didn't capture any hill. But the bottom line is we want those stories. First of all, why did you get involved? How did that happen? You know, what impact did you have on the people you led? And in turn, what impact did the conflict have on on you, uh, particularly when you came home? World War II veterans took a while to talk, but they talked, and they had American Legion posts to talk. We are finding that the Korean War it's taken a bit longer to talk, and Vietnam was extremely difficult. Those those people didn't really get around to telling their story. Uh, in some cases, when Chris and I are doing interviews, until we sat down and talked with them. It seems that it's the self-deprecating part of heroism when they say, I don't have much to tell. And they may not think it is, but by simply telling the story, you discover amazing things, I bet. Yes, we get to the end of the interview, and and he might casually say, I was, I was awarded a Bronze Star for that, you know. And, oh, maybe we need to back up a little bit. I missed that line which said, um, so there are, there, are, there are people out there who just are very humble, you know, and, you know, self-deprecating, and 
but if you talk to them long enough, and I mean most of our interviews run at least an hour, and many of them longer, um, we get around to that. There is no f no set format. We talk, and they talk, and we get an idea what they're interested in talking about, you know, and most of the time it comes out. In doing the oral histories, and I've had a similar experience in interviewing in different fields, there are sometimes little nuggets that just blow you away that you either didn't expect or sometimes the person telling the story stops and says, I don't think I've ever told that story before. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of something that either surprised you or you got done with the interview and you thought, wow, that was really something meaningful. Sure. Um, you know, a few years back we did a Vietnam exhibit and a lot of these veterans came home and took off their uniform, went back to work and didn't like to talk about their experiences. And throughout that year duration of that exhibit being up, veterans would come in, they'd be impressed by the work we've done, and through Bob and I's conversation, would decide to sit down and do an interview. And on a few occasions, I interviewed some veterans who didn't talk to their wives about this, didn't talk to their children's about this. And at the end of the interview, they, they thought maybe they'd talk to us for 15 minutes, and 90 minutes later, we have an excellent account of their history and service to our country. And... It would bring tears to their eyes because it was it was something they've never really been able to open up with. And here it's an easier transformation to tell their family about it. Now they have a DVD record that even if they're not comfortable immediately watching it with their family, that record's there and they know that that story is going to be preserved. Chris Shackelford and Bob Niemeyer of the Sullivan Brothers Iowa Veterans Museum in Waterloo. You can learn more by going to Grout Museum District. Org. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can connect with us online, iowawatch.org. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again for a list of stations that carry the program and more, iowawatch.org. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. The program is produced in the studios of KXEL Radio, Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Cedar Rapids. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.